Well, good morning once again. Thanks so much for coming to church today. I want to start with a little quick question. Have you ever heard the phrase, God sighting? Oh, I had a God sighting this week. Or sometimes small groups, they get together and that's their opening discussion icebreaker question. Have you seen God this week? Have you seen a, have you had a God seeing, a God sighting? Well, it's kind of what I want to talk about today because we're going to dive into a bit of a difficult theological concept. Just bear with me though. I'll challenge uh, you know, you to think a little bit about the word providence. We've mentioned it here already, but God's providence as it's seen through his people. God's sightings are probably a part of God's providence, his sovereignty, his provision for us in the world. D.A. Carson is a uh, biblical scholar, a professor of New Testament, actually, at Trinity. And he said, the mystery of providence defies our attempt to tame it by reason. I don't mean that it's illogical. I mean that we do not know enough about it to unpack it. It's a deep, wonderful statement as this scholar reflects for us on the providence of God. The providence of God. It's a difficult topic to wrap our heads around. That God would still interact with his creation. That he's ultimately intimately involved with all of us. And all of this stuff we call life on earth. There's a, uh, another resource that I use sometimes. The, uh, the Lexham Survey of Theology is a very thick book, of course. But it mentions providence. And I want you to follow along with me here. Providence is the governing power of God that oversees his creation and works out his plans for it. What this means is that after creating the world, God continues to interact with it his creation, to govern it. He didn't just wind it up and set it free, just let it go. No, he continues to be intimately involved with his creation. That's his providence. And I want you to see today, through this wonderful next chapter in Ruth, another situation in which God's providence and his sovereignty are going to be clearly revealed. You can't, you just can't make this stuff up, right? You've heard that phrase. He begins to unfold his plan for very specific people. And in this second chapter, we're going to see God's providential work in the people to bring about changes to set up a wonderful future for all of these characters. And ultimately, a wonderful future for the kingdom, the Hebrew people, and a beautiful future for you and me. So do you remember our story at the end of chapter 1? Do you remember what time of year it was? I kind of dropped that little foreshadow, that little nugget on you last week. Call it out. Do you remember what time of year it was? The barley harvest. Everybody goes, well, okay, whatever. The barley harvest. The barley harvest. Today we're going to see three primary ways that God's providence is produced or shown in this wonderful chapter. Number one is that God typically works through people to bring about his plans. He works through people. Number two, it is a very personal providence. It often speaks to the deepest needs of the people involved. And then number three, on the back end, like we've uh, talked about, it's always powerfully revealed or prov- powerfully proven, I might say. 
And so watch along in your outline here as we go. Here's point number one. God's work often happens through people. He could certainly do whatever he wants, of course, in the universe. And at some point, he does those wonderful scientific things that we can measure about the corn growing across the street or the sun coming and going, the moon rising, the rain that we somehow get and don't get. Those are all wonderful aspects of God's systematic providence. Okay, He works through creation. But I want to dive in here, and I want to start in chapter 2, if you'll follow along with me, into seeing a glimpse of the providence of God through people through the actions, somehow, of the freedoms that we have, that these characters have, but also the plans of God. How do you reconcile those things in your life? God values our freedom. We make decisions. Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem last week. We talked about Ruth's decision to produce Hesed love, to express God's love for Naomi and being loyal and supporting her. But that's part of God's providence in these people's lives. Was it their choice? Or was it God's providence? Yep, it was. Right? And we're going to see more of that this week. Pick it up here with me in number chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative. Stand up, Dolly. Yes, we're going to keep doing this. Hello, Naomi. You had a relative on your husband's side. Hmm. A man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Oh, Rod, i got to pull you up here. Stand up, Rod. Hello, Boaz. Say good morning, Boaz. Hello, Boaz. Stay standing there for me a moment. Verse 2. Now, Ruth. Oh, she's not here today. Sorry. They're at the Alive Festival. Megan, we're thinking of you if you happen to be watching. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, I'm going to go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Naomi, you can sit down. Let's talk about Boaz here for a second. Boaz, welcome to the story. You are a relative of Naomi's husband. He's also the brother of Mike, if you happen to not put that together. Couldn't resist. I'm glad you're here today. But Boaz's name means swiftly. Isn't that cool? Swiftly. You're trying to build a house swiftly here before the deadline. That's right. But Boaz is named in this verse as a man of standing. Your translations may bring it out different ways. Boaz is uh, standing. He's a man of standing, the NIV says. Other translations say he was a good man. He's a man of strong character. He was a wealthy man, a landowner. But the words here in Hebrew are actually describing Boaz exactly the way the wife of noble character, the woman of noble, noble character in Proverbs 31, exactly the same terms. Noble character. Okay, so I want you to remember that, that he is a swift, noble character. Thank you, Rod. You may be seated. And so in verse 2, we're shown the humility and the resourcefulness of Ruth. Remember that? She says to Naomi that she's going to go and glean some grain, probably barley, during the harvest period. And so she bravely works. She steps out to provide for herself and Naomi. We don't know why Naomi doesn't go with her. Maybe that's just not her thing. She's tired. Maybe she's just, uh, you know, not, not up to the challenge. Maybe she's still paralyzed by the depression. 
and the downtroddenness that she still felt from last week. We're not sure. But she does approve of Ruth going and trying this. But you need to realize culturally how difficult and dis, uh, dangerous this act of Ruth could have been. We're going to talk about gleaning here a second. Pick it up in verse 3. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And so what this means, in essence, is picking up scraps, picking up what may have dropped. Okay? And sometimes even in fruit harvesting, we call it the drops. You're going to go to to the apple orchard and pick up drops. Some of you may have done that, by the way. As it turned out, as it turned out, as it turned out, she was working in a field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the clan of Limelech. Gleaning was something reserved ultimately for the less advantaged people of the society, for the poor people, for widows, outsiders. Aliens, foreigners. It wasn't easy work. There was no glory or admiration in it. Yet she humbles herself, takes the initiative to go out and seek food for herself and Naomi. She humbles herself. The author of this book wants us to see how God is using this difficult work of gleaning to bring about his plan. So much so that he, you're going to see this word glean about 12 times throughout all of this chapter. He wants us to remember the physical manifestation of his promise, of his providence through the actions, albeit hard work, of these people. And so at the same time we're going to see Ruth going out, we're going to see, I I love the translations here. So this is the NIV translation, uh, as it turned out, right? And she happened. That's the the ESV translation. Slightly different nuance here. As it happened. As it happened. And that phrase there, if you study the the Hebrew here, is kind of like casting a lot. So we drew lots for our elder nomination and confirmation. Remember the affirmation of, of the elder by lot. That's a fascinating process that is a part of our tradition that we've maintained here. A lot seems to be random, but we believe that it isn't, actually. And so she didn't just by chance happen to end up in a field owned by Boaz. That she just, as it turns out, this is no coincidence, right? Some of what we're rooting this understanding of the lot is is back to a proverb. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 says, the last, the lot is cast into the lot. We, we re-roll the dice, but the The decision is from the Lord. That's a fascinating thought to think that God is intricately involved in the decisions of life. That's a fascinating part of the story. As it turns out, or she happened to be there. Pick it up in verse 4 now. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. What a beautiful interaction here with the boss and the workers, right? Obviously, we see a man who has a good working relationship with his workers. He seems to have quite the gift of leadership. They respect him. They wish God's blessing upon him. And like any good leader, Boaz notices something different in the field, probably. Verse 5, Boaz asks the overseer of the harvesters, who's this young woman? (laughs) 
<laughs> Who's this young woman among you? I don't recognize her. And so thus Boaz notices Ruth working in the field. And like any good leader, he investigates a little bit. In verse 6 now, we read that the workers explain, they fill him in. The overseer of the foreman, in essence, says she's the Moabite that came back from Moab with Naomi. In verse 7, this is still the foreman or the overseer speaking. She said to me, please let me glean and gather some of the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Took her break time. You see, this was a powerful part of the culture back then. We still practice it a little bit today. I know. Even in our community, this is done. Ruth followed the customs and the rules of this Hebrew culture of being in Judah, in Bethlehem, during the days of the harvest. And these rules go back to the Leviticus and Deuteronomic rules that Moses assembled for the people. Even when they became a nation, when they were freed from Egypt, right? They become this nation of people. Well, how are we going to live? And Moses' Leviticus and Deuteronomy are those rules and regulations, the health and safety manual of being a people of God. It goes back to Leviticus 19. Here's one of the examples of that. When you reap and harvest your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time and pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor or the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. I love that. I'm the Lord, your God. Do what I tell you to do. Don't ask me why. Just do it. Let my providence play out in the lives of my beloved, both you and the poor and the needy and those that could use the extras, in essence, of your field. It's a beautiful picture. Ruth just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that poor person. I'm going to be the outsider. I am. And we got to eat. So she makes her way to a field where she hopes to find favor, and she finds it. Pick it up in verse 8 now. So Boaz approaches this new lady, this new young woman in the field. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Mm. So what does Boaz know about this situation that Ruth may not know? That came to me this week as we studied this, right? Because at this point in the situation, this could go one of two ways for Ruth. He could respond harshly with judgment. Where are you from? Moab. Get out of here. We don't respect you. You're from the wrong side of the tracks. In fact, what history will tell you is that landowners such as this one may not only dismiss and shun these poor people, but they may even allow them to be subject to abuse, physical, sexual, and other ways of dominance that are tragic to the life of a vulnerable person like Ruth and Naomi. Or the man of noble character steps up to the plate He does what God has inspired him to do and says, you stay here. Stay with us. You don't need to go anywhere else. I see you're a hard worker. I like what I see. I'm going to take care of you. My daughter. My daughter. Interesting way to address this person. 
In verse 9, he furthers his instructions. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, you go get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And this is action-packed as well with cultural ramifications, right? Like I said, these vulnerable people were subject to whatever the owners or the, the locals would have for them. In fact, in a culture where the women typically drew the water for the men in these situations, Boaz brings her on the inside and says, no, you're not only going to be... Per- because if anyone touches you, they'll have me to answer to. Ah, a protection and a provision. A providence is expressed here. Boaz expresses his own providence over his own land, his own workers, and his own visitors. It's hospitality. That's what it is. It's powerful. I'm not only going to help you work and get what you need, I'm going to bless you in the process, my daughter. My daughter. And that's where this becomes so personal. We'll talk about that in a second. Boaz offers her hospitality and protection, which is exactly what she needed at this moment. And she's going to work. She's going to work hard. Verse 10, now keep following along. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she simply asked him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner, an outsider? What's the deal here? I certainly didn't expect this. What a powerful question. He starts off, calls her his daughter. It's kind of like you and I calling someone brother or sister. It's a term of endearment. It's like, no, you can trust me. Watch that field. Follow the men. You can even drink out of the water jars with them. She bowed down low and says, what in the world would motivate you to do this? She realizes that she's being treated by Boaz in a kind of a different way. This isn't normal. She falls down in humility and thankfulness and reminds him of her foreigner status, of her visitor status. Well, guess what, Ruth? I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you didn't even know. It's back to that expression of Hesed love. Remember that? Don't push me away, Naomi. Where you're going, I'm going. Where you're staying, I'm staying. I'm with you to the very end of our lives. And Boaz gets outside of his own situation to understand the circumstances of this new person. And because of the gathering of the data that he's, that he's received, he says, this is a person of, of humility and of character. And if you're going to love my sister-in-law like that, then I'm going to love you and I'm going to care for you. Listen to what he says here in verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. It's a prayer of blessing. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And there's a wonderful statement, right? We read that in the Psalms many times. Lord, bring me under your wings of protection. But this is Boaz. And this, this is what's funny to me. Uh, hello, Boaz, do you realize that you are the implement that God's using to richly bless her? He may not even realize that's what, oh, may, may God bless you. 
May God repay you, uh, Ruth, for what you've done. <laughs> it's him. It's him. And some of you know the end of the story. It's him. He is the rich blessing. But he, isn't that so cool? How we're used by God and we may not even understand what we're doing. Because we're just being obedient. We're just doing what God told us to do. Peace, patience, love, kindness, goodness, self-control, Brian. Absolutely. Love it. And so Ruth responds and says, Yes, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. This is wonderful. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. And though I don't even have standing amongst your servants, you've treated me as one. He prays a blessing over her from God. His prayerful blessing asks for both protection, identity, all these good things. Boaz may not even know that he's the repayment. Let's just step back from this for just a moment. It's a wonderful interaction. Obviously, you can go back and read it this week again. Do you see God orchestrating this interaction so far? Hello? Ruth chooses to take a risk to provide some food and care for Naomi and herself. She happens upon a certain field that belongs to a relative of Naomi's who's heard her story, despite the fact that many in Israel would have probably shunned her as a Moabite Moabite woman, dismissed her. Naomi serves Ruth in accepting her into her family. Ruth then serves Naomi in this hesed, beautiful love. Boaz now serves Ruth because of that love and hard work, that sense of humility, and we sense that God is partnering with all of us in this accomplishment of his plans. And I want you to re- I want to remind you today that the same God that is working in the lives of this st- of the people of this story is the same God sovereignly orchestrating the events of your life and of mine. God's providence is seen throughout each of our lives every day. Even the Apostle Paul. And this is a classic verse that has often gone, uh, we've, we call upon this. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purposes. It's a beautiful verse. A beautiful reminder. But trust me, God is always sovereignly working. Even when we don't see it. Even when we may not think He's there. We know that in the lives of His sons and daughters, His beloved children, He will work all things for our good. That sounds good coming from the pulpit, but I know we all have to walk out of here every day and live this. And some of you are facing it right now. You're facing the hardship. You're facing the dark day. You're facing the health issues. And you can say, how in the world, God, could you ever work this for my good? Stay at the table. Stay in the game. Don't shrink back. Note the phrase here, all things. Not just the good things, not just the easy things, even the bad stuff. So we know now that God is using people to bring about his purposes. But I want you to see that oftentimes God's work is often very personal. I just was was so blessed by this wonderful piece of artwork. It's Ruth standing alone in the harvest field. I want you to see God's providence in her life and how personal this really was. 
Pick it up in verse 14. At mealtime then. We're getting to dinner. Or maybe it's lunch. Whatever. Boaz said to her, come on over here. You have some bread. And you dip it into the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. And she ate all she wanted. And she even had some left over. You see, Boaz in this beautiful gesture of just grafting her right into the family. Because that's what it is, by the way. You're one of us now. Boaz gives Ruth more than just food. He gives her an identity. And I want you to see that this is the most personal, deeply seated need that she had. Who am I? Where am I? What am I going to do? I have made this commitment to my, my mother-in-law. And I love her with all of my heart. I, I've embraced her, her God and her customs and her people. And now, I'm one of them. Because you see that the intimate gesture of saying, no, you dip your bread into that wine. You're one of us now. That's the beautiful picture. And in another couple of weeks, folks, we're going to have the opportunity. I'm thinking of trying to how to figure this out. But we're going to do communion here on July 30th. And we may just take that great bread, Joyce, and we might just dip it in the, dip it in the cup and eat. We're going to try to figure out how to do that with sanitary and all of our, you know, health stuff. But that's intimate. That's what Jesus is saying in the Last Supper. These are the men that will dip the bread, even Judas, to dip the bread intimately to be family with the Lord Jesus. This is the new covenant in my blood. Take and eat and drink. Become one of us. Become like me. What a beautiful picture. And I just don't want you to lose this today. Is that Boaz extends to her something that is invaluable to this young woman. It's a beautiful picture. And it has such symbolism for the way God expresses His love for us. Welcoming us into His family and His exact representation of how we ought to treat each other. Especially visitors and new people. Foreigners. Those that are vulnerable. Less fortunate. Those that we can love. This is easy. This is the easy stuff. And who do you know in your life right now that you could extend that cup? That you could welcome into your family, into your church, into your community, and say, we love you, you're one of us. Because ultimately, Boaz recognizes her character. Her character. And he commends her for acting probably more like a faithful Hebrew than some of the faithful Hebrews. This has ramifications For us as Gentiles, right? The Gentiles were those that were outside the chosen people of God. And the Acts story in the first century and all of this beautiful stuff that's happening in the church after Jesus arrived, you know, is ascended. It's like, ah, how do we graft everybody in here? Should they be circumcised or do they need to follow these rules or what do we do with these sacrifices and these? Ah, it's a beautiful picture. And they both express a wonderful gesture of humility. That was one of the things that permeates this story for me. Boaz is humble. Greetings, workers. How's it going today? Let's eat together. Let's have, let's have fellowship. Oh, who's this new lady? Oh, come on in here. What, what, oh, I know your story. Come on in here. There's a humility in that. And Ruth, of course, my Lord, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I don't, <laughs> why are you doing this for me? What, what, what's the story? There's such a humility here. And I love it. Proverbs 22 says, humility is the fear of the Lord. And its wages are riches and honor and life. 
There's so many salvation stories that you'll see. There's clips out there on the internet. You can see people's testimonies. And the ones that are most powerful for me is they said, yeah, you know, I knew the love of God. I walked in the grace. I understand God's love and his mercy and his power. You know, but, but what brought me to Christ was my fear to say that God is actually real. It's back to that, you know, do you, you could fear the, fear the guy who can destroy your body. Yeah, okay. But you better fear the person who could destroy your body and your soul. And so the fear here of the Lord is the root of why we obey Him. It's the root of why we do what He asks us to do. Now, I might say that it's not a loathsome fear that fears for our own bodily... No, 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 no. It becomes an awesome fear. Oh, like awesome fear. There's two different nuances there. And we are in awe of God. How great thou art. Right? Rick Warren's a great popular writer, famous pastor. Now in his retirement years, he wrote this wonderful book. It is a powerful uh, a tool for discipleship, but it's called The Purpose Driven Life. And he says this. It's so great. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually just thinking of yourself less. <laughs> I love it. See, sometimes we get in our heads that, oh my, I can't, oh, I'm just, oh, I, I'm just, oh, no, don't, you know, like, like I, oh, I'm not all that. I can't do that. I, I'm sorry. No, that's not humility. It's not thinking of, thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I'm not very good, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. that that's an immature humility. Boaz is expressing a mature humility that says, may God bless you for what you've done for my relative Naomi. And here I am being the blessing. He didn't even realize it. Humility means having a modest view of your own importance. What does God think about you? That's a good place to start. What does God think of me? Get up in the morning and ask yourself that. Hey, God, what do you think of me? You look in the mirror, brush your teeth. What are you thinking of me, God? Do the inventory. It's okay. Because guess what? With humility, I ask that question. And you know what? He, he'll, he'll answer it. He'll answer that question. God's provision playing out for people. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But it's rooted in our humility and our understanding that He's God and I'm not. Let's keep going here. Verse 15. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to the men. You let her gather among the sheaves. Don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks from your bundles and leave them for her to pick it up. And don't you rebuke her. <laughs> it's downright favoritism at this point. But guess what? Hey, you're the boss, Boaz. Okay. Boaz continues to be personally, a personal demonstration of God's plan in Ruth and Naomi's life. He tells these young men to leave her alone and let her work. He actually tells them to throw some of the extras out so that she can have even more. So we see that God's provision is working out through people. And we see that God's provision is often very personal to the, per, to the person. But I want you to see that God's work is always, most always, powerfully proven. It's going to be revealed here, okay? Because this wonderful day in Ruth's life is going to come to an end. The day is, is waning, and God's work will be powerfully proven. <laughs> I want you to, to see here if Naomi's going to have a God sighting. Keep it in your mind. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until the evening. And then she threshed the barley that she had gathered 
and it amounted to about an ephah. And she carried it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over from the roasted that she had eaten. Remember the leftovers? She had the doggy bag. And she gave it to, to Naomi. So biblical scholars and historians will tell you that an ephah is about a five-gallon bucket full of barley. I almost brought a five-gallon bucket up here, but everybody knows what a five-gallon bucket is. And that five-gallon bucket full of barley would, would weigh about 30 pounds in ephah. 30 pounds! 30 pounds of barley! Now, some of you have done some baking and grinding. You know what this is. That's a five-gallon bucket full of grain. Some poor Moabite girl goes to a field and comes back with 30 pounds of, of barley? <laughs> of course, Naomi asks. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. What in the world? And so Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. We're running out of time here, folks. i got to finish this thing. But I want you to see the inspired message in this powerful part of the story. Because I want you to be the one that goes out into this world and in humble, hard work, walks around with a 30-pound, five-gallon bucket full of grain. And you're going to be asked someday, who in the world has helped you do what you do? The name of the man who gives me my passion. The name of the man who gives me my life. The name of the man who gives me everything that I have ever wanted and needed. The, ma- the name of the man who's given me the deepest part of my identity. The, the name of the man who welcomed me into his family by dipping the bread into the blood of his covenant is Jesus, my Redeemer. That's what we preach. And so Naomi says, blessed is the man who's helped us this way. The Lord bless him, she said. Who in the world? It's Boaz. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead, she says. That man is our close relative. He's our guardian redeemer. I can't even have time to explain what this means. But do you catch the vision here? The imagery, the metaphor, the powerful image of God and Jesus in our lives. Because we're just strangers. We're just wanderers. We're just broken, sinful people on some sort of journey in a foreign land trying to figure it out. But we work hard. We show up and we love each other. We express Hesed love. And Boaz, Jesus, our guardian redeemer, takes care of us. And we have more than we would ever know. Listen to this. Naomi is obviously overjoyed and states that she's going to make a connection here that says, whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 hold on a second here. And Naomi is going to be inspired by the Spirit of God to put some dots together. Oh, chapter 3 is coming. Right? Hold on a second here. Ruth sweetens the deal. In verse 21, she says, hey, and this guy even said, hey, you stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women and work for this guy. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. 
oh God, that we would be found in your field. That we would just happen to come along and work for you, Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. What a beautiful story. So let's do the math here. We got 30 pounds of grain in one day. And the barley harvest in Bethlehem lasts about 50 days. 40 to 50 days. Okay? Roughly. That's kind of how it works. She's going to work every day. And guess what the scholars will tell you? The way they ground this up, it was food enough for them for one week in that five-gallon bucket. Boaz just blessed them with food for the whole year. But Ruth has to go. She's got to go work. She's got to go glean. She's going to work with the women. She's going to follow those guys. They're going to work their tails off for the harvest. And she's stockpiling 30 pounds a day. What a provision. Both physical, spiritual, emotional. You can hear the excitement in her voice. The last few verses show that Ruth will continue to work and to glean in those fields. Verse 23 likely spans about six or seven weeks of time. Be like from late April to June in our calendar. 50 days, 50 ephahs, 50 weeks. I'm sure echoing through Naomi's God sighting here is one last verse I want to leave with you. Naomi would have understood this concept. The Lord himself goes before you and he'll be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, no matter what you face, he said it himself, remember? I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus is the embodiment of God. He is the image of the unseen God in our lives. The logos of God. And so I simply ask you today, because somebody needs to hear this, have you had a God sighting? Have you seen God's providence? Have you seen God's provision in your life? Is God sovereignly orchestrating things to work out for your good? But it happens through people in deeply personal ways. And on the back end, it is powerfully, powerfully proven. If you've had a God sighting lately, share it with somebody. That's your bucket of grain. If you haven't received it yet, stay at the table. Keep doing what you know you have to do today. I just follow you one step at a time, Lord. And I can't see the next step in front of me, but I'm going to trust you for that step. That might be where you're at today. Deuteronomy 31.8 is for you. Do not be discouraged. Even in the bad times, God is working all things together for our good. Let's rejoice in that.